Amen. Please be seated. We continue this morning in our study on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, so let me ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. You'll find that on page 810 in our Bibles that we have in the pews. When I graduated college, moved to Myrtle Beach, I decided I wanted to get serious about golf. And uh, so I went out and bought some very, very nice golf clubs, started taking lessons, practiced almost every day, and played on the weekends. Now, when I say get serious, it doesn't mean that I got good. But I did get serious, and uh, sometimes too serious, and found myself on occasion losing my temper on the golf course. And so what would happen when I would lose my temper? I would throw my golf club into the woods. And I can still hear it, whoosh, 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 as it's going into the woods. My friends would laugh at me as I would have to go running after my golf club to retrieve it so that I could continue to play golf. Some of you know the name Bobby Jones. He's the one that developed, that really found Augusta National. Well, he was a great golfer, and uh, he had one big weakness, and that was that he had a temper, and he threw his golf clubs until one day he hit one of the women in the crowd. And uh, he almost got kicked out of golf altogether. A bad temper or anger never does anything good. It's very destructive. David Pallison wrote an extraordinary book called Good and Angry. And in it he said, our anger incinerates marriages We've seen that. It disintegrates families. We've seen that. Anger also energizes gossip. We've seen that. It also divides churches. It destroys friendships. And it erupts in road rage. There's really nothing good that comes out of our sinful anger. And so, as you can imagine, Jesus has a fair amount to say about that. And I want to tell you that it is uh, very sobering. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin reading in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, don't just rush past that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, uh, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, 
and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you have paid the last penny. Would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we need to hear these words, especially in our day, uh, when anger seems to be the, something that is just celebrated. So help us, Father, and help us to see our own hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, at the very beginning of this passage, Jesus says something that may be a bit confusing. It can look as though he's, he's pitting himself against the Old Testament law. You have heard that it was said to those long ago, but I say to you. But as we saw last week, Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament law, but to live it out fully, to, to fulfill it. And so what is Jesus doing then? Well, he's pitting himself against the false religion of religious leaders who had reduced following God to something we can do in our own strength because it has nothing to do with heart and everything to do with what we say and what we do. In other words, they just made it easy. It was something they could do on their own. And so, you could hate somebody on the inside. I mean, really hate them. But if you didn't murder them, then you were fine with God. Well, of course, Jesus disagrees with that. Obedience to God begins in the heart, as we saw last week. It's an inside-out kind of religion. Uh, there, there should be an integrity of what's going on in the inside and the outside. God looks at the heart. And so Jesus says then, it's not enough to say whoever murders will be liable to judgment. That, that's true, but it's also true that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And so what you've got then is this kind of continuum, but it's all part of the same spiritual sickness. Anger is a very, very serious matter. Years ago, I read uh, Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins. In other words, those sins that we kind of accept in the evangelical culture, they're not that bad. You know, they're not great, but it's okay. And three chapters were devoted to anger in the one book. You know, anger in our day has become not only a respectable sin, though, if he were writing it today, I bet he would say it's cause for celebration. And we honor those who uh, can become angry very quickly and, and, as I've talked to you about in a previous sermon, can kind of throttle their opponents, so to speak. Anger is a very, very serious matter. And as I've wrestled with this, I've had to acknowledge my own struggles in the past here. I have uh, probably done it all. I have certainly had a short temper. Uh, I used to fight a lot when I was a kid. And uh, last time I remember actually being in a fist fight was in college. Um, I could hold grudges. And I went through a season of rage. And uh, so as I looked at this, I read a fair amount to try to get at three questions that I want to ask of this text. First, what is anger? 
What is anger? Second, what does my anger say about my heart? And third, what should I do about my anger? So first, what is anger? Well, simple answer, it is murder. That's the way Jesus defines it. Are there worse consequences for actual physical murder than the anger that Jesus is, is, is focusing in on? Yes, of course, but it is a form of murder. Now, let me just step back a minute. There is a righteous anger. There are times when we should be angry. Jesus got angry at the money changers in the temple. He got angry at the hypocrites because of their cruelty. Now, now, what made him angry, though? It was the fact that what they were doing was harming other people. The money changers were keeping the Gentiles out. Those who were hypocrites were leading people to hell and not to heaven. And so Jesus got angry at the way they were harming other people. He became angry for the sake of others. Now, what about us? Why do we usually become angry? I mean, think about that for a minute. Is it because of some harm to somebody else, or is it primarily because we're being mistreated in some way? Jesus really didn't become angry at being mistreated. He was mistreated all the time, and especially as he was led to the cross. But we're told that he was as quiet as a lamb led to the slaughter. He, he didn't rebuke. He didn't offer a self-defense. In fact, as we see in Luke 22, he was silent except to say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then Peter later describes it in this way. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And so what you've got then is very, very different kinds of anger. Righteous anger, as modeled for us in Jesus Christ, is anger because of other people getting hurt. Our anger instead is typically because, because we're being mistreated. Why do we get angry? I think we get angry when someone gets in the way of something that we want. Boy, then it happens. You know, we scream at referees who don't give us what we want. We get offended when people ignore us. We resent it when someone is constantly late showing up to be with us. We fume at people who make us look bad. And how many times have you said idiot under your breath to the person in the car in front of you who didn't see that the light turned green because they were looking at their phone? We are so quick to get angry when someone gets in the way of something that we want but very slow to anger at sins that offend God and harm others. And so our anger is, for the most part, murder. Ed Welch said this, the only difference is in our choice of weapons. Some use guns, others use words. We treat, though, 
the damage that we do with our lips very, very lightly because we do not see the corpses that we leave behind with our murderous hearts and words and actions. And so that's why Jesus calls us murderers. And see, I mean, here's, you know, he, he came to bring shalom. He, he came to bring, to restore human flourishing on the earth. That's what we see in, in the Beatitudes. Blessed are, or flourishing are those who are this, 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 and, and this. And what we do in our anger, though, is to begin to tear away at the fabric of that shalom. We begin to destroy that flourishing. And, and so that's why God gets angry at those who get angry for sinful reasons. We cause harm. We destroy what he is attempting to do. You know, it takes different forms for different people. For some, it's a calling someone a fool. For others, it's insulting someone with a kind of self-righteous contempt as though, what's wrong with you? And for others, it's just rolling your eyes. How many times have you done that? I've had to quit rolling my eyes because uh, Judy catches me every single time. You know, whether you are aggressive in your anger or passive-aggressive in your anger, it doesn't matter what happens in your anger you are being welcomed into this group of people, this, this band of murderers. So first question, what is anger? Well, it's murder. And we have to own that. We have to embrace that truth. Second question, what does my anger say about my own heart? Well, as we saw last week, and as we see again this week, Christ pushes us to look at the heart. And so what I want to do for just a, a moment is to ask not just about how do we deal with our anger, but how do we understand perhaps the motives that are behind even our anger? And David Pallison in his wonderful book gives us three, and they all three apply. I've tried to wrestle with this, to think through this, and they all apply oftentimes with, with our anger. Number one, first motive that lies underneath, as it were, our anger. First is this, I want my way. You know, I must be loved. I demand your respect. I need you to treat me the way I want to be treated. I command that you give me a break. I insist that you be understanding. I demand that you be affectionate. Whatever it is, as we look at our anger, it, it says, I want this. And so, the, the way we begin to think about it is this way, and, and what it, how it leads so quickly to anger is, what I want is right, we feel like that, and, and so we have a right to be angry with you if you don't give it to me. Well, of course that's not the case. Anger is murder. Judy and I have three children, and uh, one is very neat, one is somewhat messy, and one is especially gifted at being messy. Her name is Mary Catherine, and she's practically perfect in every other way, but she is messy. And so her room, growing up, she, she could mess it up in two, two minutes flat. 
And, and if you wanted to walk in her room, you had to kind of look to see if there's any square inch anywhere in her room that doesn't have uh, books and clothes on it. And in fact, you couldn't find a place because it was a foot thick with clothes and books. And at one time, I had been in there trying to help her straighten up, crawled under her bed, and found an old science project. It was a potato that had been there for months. And uh, you know those eyes that grow on the potatoes? Well, this looked like a giant spider out of the outer limits. I mean, it had legs like these, eyes. It was, it was awful. Now, here's the point. Every once in a while, I did get up the nerve to go in and try to help her clean up. And usually I lasted about one minute. I would get so frustrated, I would turn around and leave in frustration. And what makes me sad as I think about that now is I know she knew I was frustrated. And so she saw a bit of my murderous heart who wanted her room to be neat, even though she was fine. It didn't bother her a bit. First motive for our anger is I want my way. Second motive is I like playing the victim. Now, you're probably thinking, I don't like playing the victim, but just wait a minute. Think about it like this way. When someone wrongs you, and it's fairly significant, when someone wrongs you or you imagine that someone has, often it's not true, but whether it is true or not, when that happens, when something is either withheld from us that we think we deserve or not given to us that we desperately want, then what happens is that we tend to put that person on trial for crimes that they've committed against us. And so we put them on trial, and then we very quickly convict them without ever going to them and really trying to understand what happened. And then what do we do? We punish them with our anger. We pay them back. Now, why do we do that? Well, if Pallison is correct, and I think he is, uh, we like self-pity. We like self-righteousness. They're very strong narcotics. It feels so good to feel so bad because it makes me feel justified. It makes me look good, and you look bad. I want my way. I like playing the victim. Third motive is this. I like playing God. What do I mean by that? Well, whether I'm really ticked off or just a little irritated or deeply embittered, it's all about almighty me. Anger is so demanding and, and is there because such of a sense of entitlement. I deserve this. I should have gotten that. You're keeping that from me. This is what I want that our attitude, that we would never say these words. This is what our attitude becomes. My kingdom come, my will be done. Not your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but my kingdom come. It's my will that matters here. And when you think about it that way, what you have then is a rejection of God's authority you're not submitting yourself to the Lord. You're basically raising yourself to a position even above the Lord by saying what I want is right even if it's contrary to what you want for me. 
And when we do that, it's very much a repeat of Satan's sin against God that resulted in his fall from heaven, as we see in Jude 6. He wanted the glory of the Lord. He wanted the authority of the Lord. And so here's something that we should all think of in the midst of our anger, before we get angry, after we've repented of our anger. Satan loves you to be angry. He loves it because it puts you in a league with him. Isn't it interesting that Jesus describes Satan in John 8, 44 as a murderer from the beginning? We're either aligned with Christ or we're aligned with Satan when it comes to anger. If there's a righteousness in our anger, then it's for the sake of other people. Otherwise, we are aligning ourselves with the evil one. Anger is not a minor sin. It is not respectable. It should not be respectable. It should not be celebrated. It should be repented of. And that really is where we're going with the third question, what should I do about my anger? Well, the simple answer is repent, but we've got to think about, as a part of that, reconciling with those we've hurt. And we have to take the initiative. That's where Christ is taking us in these two illustrations. You know, when we become angry because we don't get what we want and we retaliate in, someone, in some way, then that person, even if they have wronged us, if we retaliate uh, with an anger of heart or an anger of words or an anger of deeds, then, then we have wronged them and they have something against us. And what Christ is saying is you need to go and make it right as best you can. Verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar... And they remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. Go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What's here is the necessity of reconciliation. Jesus is actually saying, on occasion, it is okay not to go to church on Sunday morning to worship. Because worship is a sham when we harbor anger toward a fellow worshiper. So here's the truth that we have to recognize. We cannot be right with God until we put ourselves right with your brother or your sister in Christ. The two go hand in hand. Now, we can't make someone forgive us, reconcile with us, but we can go and do everything possible to seek that outcome. Second illustration really talks to us about how urgent it is. It's not just necessary. You should do it quickly. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Uh, This isn't a kind of way to think about the next legal case you're involved in. That's not really where Jesus is taking us. He is taking us to the urgency of getting right with people that have something against you. 
Otherwise, I mean, you know what happens when we let things go and go and go. They get worse, and the consequences can be devastating. Certainly, relationships are broken at the very least. Nothing comes from, nothing good comes from waiting when you are in the wrong. So, get up and go. Reconcile. Now, just for a minute, I want to ask the question again, what should I do about my anger? Reconciliation is a part of repenting, but how do we change? How do we see the anger in our own hearts subside? Well, first, I'm going to give you two things very quickly. First, own your anger. You've got to own it. You've got to acknowledge that there's something going on in your heart that is not right. So go back to the first beatitude over and over again. We need to go back there. It's where Jesus begun, and so much of what comes later on depends on going back there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who admit their sin, who really do see that they're helpless before their own hearts. They cannot fix what is there, but God can. He is the only one. And and so it takes this, this humility this poverty of spirit, this acknowledgement that we cannot fix ourselves. And then what happens is it's spelled out for us in 1 Peter 5. God opposes the proud. So if, if you don't get to the place where you recognize your own bankruptcy, and that's a growing sense. The more mature you become, the more you see how you cannot fix yourself and the more you see your need for Christ. But God opposes the proud. If you don't get there, he will not give you what you need to be changed but God gives grace to the humble. And that's not just the forgiving kind of grace, but also the the strengthening, the helping kind of grace to enable you to do what you cannot do in your own strength. So first, own your anger, and I want you to do it this way. Don't just say, I'm so sorry uh, that I said this or I did this. Instead, say this, Father, forgive me, for I am a murderer. Just live in that identity for a day or two or three and see if it doesn't help to bring some real honest humility before the Lord. It's easy to say, I said something wrong. It's a very difficult thing to say. What that means about my own heart is that I have murderous tendencies in there. So first, own your anger. Second, turn to Christ. Think for just a minute how many times you've failed him. And this is a good not to kind of wallow in, in, in past, but sometimes it's really good to go back through and look at your life and see how many times, you know, you failed him in significant ways, how many times you misrepresented him by, by the way you live as a disciple. We're supposed to be living as he lives, and yet we fail in so many ways. And, and then how many times you have given him so many reasons to be so angry. And then the remember that Jesus did not pay you back in anger. Instead, he took your anger upon himself on a cross. It was an act of love, and then he died. One of the saddest things I ever saw when I was a kid was uh, my neighbor across the street. He was backing out of his driveway in his car. He did not know that his sweet dog was right behind his car. 
He ran over his dog. When he realized what he had done, stopped the car, ran around, picked up his dog, who stretched up her head and licked him in the face and then died. That sweet dog, last act was to lick him in the face and then she laid her head down in his hands and died. There was no anger. There was nothing but love. On the cross, Jesus did not respond to you, respond to you in anger. He, he responded in love, and then he laid his head down in his father's hands, and he died for you. That you might know life as it was meant to be. Would you pray with me? Father, we fail you in so many ways. And certainly you have every right to be very angry with us unless, and, and, and uh, you don't treat us as our sins deserve. You respond in love. As a father has compassion with his children, you have compassion for us. Thank you. And help us not only to recognize how serious our anger is, but also how much freedom we can find from our anger in you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.